Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies, we need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place. And at the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash RL Workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Hi there. 
Before I begin today's episode, which is quite different from a typical reimagining love episode, I want to give a content warning. This episode contains discussions about gun violence, mass shootings, trauma, and recovery. If you're not feeling available for these topics today, take care of yourself, please, and skip this episode. You will be able to find me here again next week. Highland Park, Illinois has been my home and our family's home for over 20 years. And on July 4th, 2022, our community became the site of one of the most American scenes of all, a mass shooting. A young man who had lived in Highland Park his whole life climbed to the roof of a local business with an AR-15 and fired 83 shots into the annual Highland Park 4th of July parade. He killed seven people, wounded 48 others, and left an entire community in chaos, terror, and grief. The story of what happened in Highland Park in the wake of the shooting mirrors what I know happens in so many communities in the wake of a collective trauma like this. People stepped up in all kinds of ways to pick up the pieces and to provide care to each other. As the one-year anniversary of this tragedy approached, I decided that I wanted to speak to it. So I reached out to one of the many people who stepped up in the wake of the shooting, Audrey Grunst. Audrey lives in a neighboring community, and she's been working as a licensed clinical social worker for over 12 years. She's the founder of Simply Be Treatment Centers, and she's also an expert and professional keynote speaker on the topic of mental resilience. She's the author of the book, Five Ways to Grow a Resilient Mind, and the host of the Well, Not Perfect podcast. Throughout her career, she's spoken to hundreds of school districts as well as at several national conferences on the topic of adolescent resilience. And she presently serves as co-chair of the District 128 Mental Health Committee and Crisis Response Teams in Illinois. And on July 4th, 2022, Audrey stepped up. She worked with school district leadership and other local organizations, and she opened a mental health center at Highland Park High School on July 5th. Over the course of that week, nearly 700 volunteer therapists spent their days counseling thousands of community members. Since then, Audrey has visited Washington, D.C. alongside survivors and advocacy groups to fight for safer schools and communities. Because of her leadership, she was recently honored as an Illinois State Senate awardee. I had never crossed paths with Audrey before my first shift volunteering at the high school. But what I remember is how incredibly impressed I was as I witnessed Audrey's leadership firsthand. So as the anniversary of the shooting approached, I approached Audrey to ask her to have this conversation with me. Audrey and I set a clear intention for this conversation, not only to honor the memory of the victims and survivors of the Highland Park shooting and all of the community members who showed up in different ways, but also to paint a picture of the circles of impact that devastating tragedies such as this one can have on communities and on our country at large. My hope is this conversation will help anyone who's listening feel less alone in their worry and anger about the frequency of these horrific events in our country. And for anyone, whether you're a mental health professional or not, I hope you'll find some takeaways about how to give and receive support and how to address the relational impact in the wake of a mass trauma. Most of all, I hope you'll feel empowered by this conversation to leverage your time, your talent, and perhaps your trauma to create change at the micro and or macro level so that we can all come together to create a world where we no longer must live in fear of gun violence. Tune into your body as you listen and feel free to pause and come back at any time. 
Having said that, I do think that Audrey and I found ways to hold on to both facets of resilience, the difficulty and the possibility. And I hope this conversation leaves you feeling stronger and more empowered. Audrey, thank you so much for being here with me today. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, this is a little bit of a different kind of episode for Reimagining Love. And so I appreciate you stepping into this space with me. And um, it's going to be clear to the listener why you and I are coming together at this time in this way. And I think because there's a lot of complexity and emotion to hold in this conversation. So I would love to start with you and I just naming some of our intentions for this conversation of what's on our hearts that we want to have guide us in this conversation. Yeah, I think I come to the conversation really understanding and having a strong background and a love and passion for resiliency and talking about being resilient and moving through the anniversary of the 4th of July shooting in Highland Park and what that means and that we can move through it and we can process it and carry it with us, but not always in the forefront. Um, and everybody just feeling like they can have an experience. And listening today, I hope people just pick up on some helpful concepts and support on the idea of being resilient and finding meaning and purpose after this. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I know that I have thought a lot about the victims and their families and the survivors and wanting to make sure that this conversation really attempts to hold all of the pain and all of the memory and all of the challenge of this time, while also I I think it's really important about, you know, resilience, right? And what we do, I was thinking also an intention for me is that I invite you and I to hold both the micro, the ways in which individuals and couples and families are impacted by gun violence, by mass shootings, but then also the macro, like sort of the larger policy failures and gaps that converge on so many towns and and a year ago converged on, on our town. And so I want to kind of hold that dual awareness of the micro. Like I really want to talk about how does somebody move through this experience and also the macro of, you know, acknowledging that this is happening for a particular set of reasons in our country, you know, vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes into concepts that people are facing that include the grief, the trauma, and then also the rebuilding and the reconnection. So there's always the light when there's the dark and understanding that and holding that at the same time is really powerful when we talk about it. And I think I also want to hold on to, you know, obviously I'm with you because you have a particular story that I want to illuminate because there's lots and lots of lessons, I think, for listeners about what elements of your story they may take into their own lives. And I was thinking this morning about this Alice Walker quote, which is the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. And so another intention I was thinking about is how do we hold both pain and power? Right? I think something like a mass shooting, something like the fact that in the U.S. this just keeps happening. I was looking at statistics that we are already tracking for our most deadly year ever in the U.S. And so how do we hold both the pain and the shadow or specter of gun violence in this country while also not for a moment letting go of our power? So that's also, I, I really want to 
kind of dig into your story as a way of perhaps, you know, offering some lessons and avenues for a listener to come away with that ability to hold pain and power. So, okay. So tell us a bit about you and then also, you know, what happened for you on July 4th, please. Yeah, of course. I am first and foremost, a wife and a mother, and also a trained clinician and licensed clinical social worker. And I've been in the mental health field for about 16 years. On 4th of July, I was at a parade uh, north of Highland Park in a town called Lake Bluff. And I go there every year with my family. And I was with my best friend from college and my two kids. And during the parade, we noticed at the end that things shifted. The fire department uh, sped off. Um, People were looking around and talking. And it was a very eerie experience. And I didn't know what was going on. And I thought maybe, you know, a house fire or maybe something was going on. People were kind of whispering. But I moved through my day. Um, So I was going to a friend's house down the road and she was just white as a ghost. And I said, you know, what's going on? And she said, there was a shooting at the Highland Park Parade. And I said, you know, oh my gosh, that's why the fire trucks left and and everything. And everything was clicking. And um, so we got our kids in the basement and we were just kind of figuring out what to do. And we were in the backyard and then we had a helicopter hovering over us looking for the person. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, you know, he could be anywhere. And so I immediately talk about feeling powerless. I immediately felt powerless that I couldn't protect myself or my kids. And I went into probably what we know as a trauma response. And I immediately thought, what can I do? How can I get involved or help or because the other option is to sit here and I don't want to sit here and be powerless and give that up. So I called a friend, a superintendent in the area, and I said, I am happy to come to Highland Park, um, come to the high school tomorrow, help your social workers see students and families, and I'd love to volunteer my time tomorrow. And she said, okay, I'll call you back. Late that night, they called me back and said, yes, please come. And so I arrived with about 20 other people, Uh, five or six of them were my contacts, and then several others were the high school's contacts. And we sat in a room, and we decided that whoever came to the high school, we were going to talk to and see and find a classroom and have, you know, just an an appointment. And that was really it. And then the first day, it was successful. The community had a huge positive response to the small group of us that were there, and they asked us to return. And so every day we kept returning and returning. And eventually I became the lead of the operation in partnership with the school. But that was not the intention and the original idea of what happened. But by the end of the week, we had over 600 volunteers and we saw over 3,000 people in an operation that was pretty extensive. We, I just want to be clear. It was over 600, nearly 700 therapists. Correct. Licensed therapists who were able and trained to see people. And the foundation of what we were using, the training that we provided, the brief training that we provided was now understanding a lot more about crisis response is theories that were based in psychological first aid. And so that if someone's listening and they ever have to develop something, please consider psychological first aid as the intervention uh, that professionals are using. 
Yeah. We will um, make sure that we link that in the show notes because there are lots of therapists who listen to this show. And I am at, and I think that's, you know, having those kinds of resources is essential. Yeah. That was the first, you know, you and I, even though we, we are both in the same field and we live in neighboring towns, our paths had not yet crossed. And it was, I wasn't there on July 5th, but by July 5th, you know, the word had gotten out quite extensively among the therapist community. So I was doing shifts with you for sure by the second day. And that was the first I'd ever seen you. And it was um, what you created was extensive and elaborate and expert, really. You know, you had, there was a board, we, you know, every therapist had a name tag with a number. I mean, it was a, it was a system. It was a complex, like a differentiated and coordinated system. It was so, it was so well run and well held that it allowed therapists to do the best they can do in the most horrifying of situations. Yeah. And the piece about it, and I think everyone will find this if they've ever responded to a crisis, whether they did a food train or they did a donation operation, you slowly build something and you keep adapting it so that you're always taking care of the people. So I always wanted to take care of the therapists. I always wanted them to then take care of the community people and then adjust and adapt constantly. And I think part of resilience is seeing that we can find our space and we can provide our skills, our time, our money, and we can do it in a slow build because what I've noticed in the response is that sometimes we jump in both feet and then we're overwhelmed and flooded by the emotion and it's re-traumatizing. And so the slow build of being involved, I think, is a very important part of resiliency. And it also allows you to adjust and adapt so that you find meaning and purpose in the post-crisis, but it's not to an overwhelming degree. You know, one of the most, as you say that, it makes me think about like one of the most striking memories that I had of that time. So I would come in for whatever it was, a three-hour shift, and you had so many therapists that we spent most of our time kind of waiting for our number to come up on the board based on the individuals and couples and families that were coming in. And one of the women that I met, you know, came in from, I don't remember how far away she had come in from, but she was an expert crisis responder. Like this was, she came in and she travels to all kinds of disasters of all kinds. And she teaches and trains um, clinicians to work with trauma and torture and like the, you know, the most intense kind of work. And so I was very aware of her and she came back from one of her sessions and asked to be taken off the board and, you know, went to the corner and did, I could tell she was doing a really intentional set of skills that she had. And so I know I came in with a lot of anxiety and urgency and how many people will I be able to help in this amount of time and shoot my number so low on the board? And what if I don't get another session in before I have to go? And all of that, which was a kind of trauma response for me, right? And then watching her do the slow build of she had done a session, she had to come back to the room, take some time, get some water, like, you know, put her headphones in. It was really very powerful to watch how she, as just one individual, did that slow build of adapting, stepping in, and ensuring that she didn't get flooded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I saw everyone, we had 68 therapists in the shifts at a time, and we had four shifts a day. We were nine to nine. And I remember watching each individual, and they 
were able to find a person in their room that they connected with. And they kind of had this connection and this sort of collaboration and everyone found their person in that room. And it was so lovely to see because then you weren't alone when you came back. And when we're thinking about how do we help people and find meaning and purpose, it's about maintaining a connection to someone that you feel like understands you and gets you. And I noticed that in the room and I thought that was really, really beautiful. And um, I found my people in that room and connected to, to people who I needed. And so we all had this really organic experience. And then because I think the room was healthy and the clinicians were healthy and balanced, they did a really nice job in those sessions and they came back and they had so much autonomy to leave, stay, take a break. And that was really important. We did not want to overwhelm anybody. Yeah. I'm thinking about how each day there were more and more members of the community who came into the center and came into the high school. So in the end, you ended up serving over 3,000 people. And I was thinking that one of the things that must have happened is that as word spread, it became clear this was for anybody who had any kind of experience that needed processing that day, that it was, and I think one of the challenges with the collective trauma is there are these kind of concentric circles of how near you were, how far you were, but the impact is not distributed nicely. None of it's distributed nicely and neatly. But I think that towards towards the end, I noticed in my shifts, there were people who perhaps were more hesitant to come early because they had fled but hadn't seen or they had, you know, heard but hadn't seen. So it's sort of these stories that can keep us from feeling like we have the entitlement to access resources. So what did you notice about people feeling permission to access what was being offered? And, and what do you take from that? I absolutely agree. I think the guilt that followed was significant and guilt's the emotion of I did something wrong or I'm doing something wrong, which is like I'm taking up a resource from someone else who deserves it more than me. And when we think about trauma and the experience that we have, all trauma is valid and real and true. And it does not matter what your proximity to that event was. So we talk about the feeling of guilt and then also observing that guilt and stepping back and saying, I'm not doing anything wrong. I do deserve to be here. And so using some mindfulness and some compassion, we try to quickly loosen up that guilt and allow people to be there in whatever form they needed to, and also tell them that there are resources in addition to this. And so one of the key parts of that operation was to connect to resources outside that were more sustainable. And the city did a really nice job of building that on the fly as they were flying the plane, they were building it, and their resources improved. So our goal was just to bridge a gap between originally it was until the Red Cross got there for the mental health response. And then it was until they got 211 up and running, until they got more brochures. Until So we were always bridging a gap. And then people started realizing, oh, this is for everyone and word spread. And I think that was really powerful to see. That's right. I think there's a story in people's heads of, I have to have had this particular experience in order to feel entitled to this resource. And I think what you're saying is so important because it's not, I think to some degree, it is nearness to the impact or proximity to the impact. And to some degree, it isn't because because an experience of terror, of fear, 
of powerlessness on its, it, it stands on its own. It doesn't need to have, we don't need to create these hierarchies. Um, and in fact, when we try to create hierarchies of like, I shouldn't feel this badly because so-and-so had it worse or because I only felt that that's, that's a way actually we, we risk keeping ourselves stuck and we increase the chances of having longer-term lingering effects because we aren't even letting ourselves sit in whatever is real for us, whatever our body is holding, whatever our heart is holding. Yeah. And I honestly saw people who came in and they said, I've never had free mental health resources before. This has never been an an opportunity. And I'm really worried about my son's mental health, who's in college right now in Iowa. And we were getting, and this is common in crisis response, we were getting all sorts of things that were not related to the parade at all. And that was something that I learned pretty quickly that this became a solution for people way beyond the parade. And we would see some families every single day having different issues, uh, immigration issues, visa issues. And they were just coming because they heard how helpful it was. And we served them. We figured it out. Um, there, there's, there's so many stories that I think about that are so off the beaten path of what you would expect to be talking about after an event like that. But their experience was valid too. And it was amazing to see people come in and ask for help and do that because they heard that it was going to be useful for them. I thought that was really powerful. Very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't known that, but that is, yeah. I was thinking also about the way that what you created allowed members of the community who felt perhaps similarly helpless and powerless, but who weren't therapists, they got to show up in other ways. So there were lots of roles. Like the room where the therapists were had so much food and there was soda and there was water and there were, you know, toy. Like there was, it was very clear that every child who entered the building would leave with a toy because people were dropping off more squishies and more coloring books. And so it gave the community also a chance to do something. Members of the community who aren't Therapists weren't able to do what some of us were doing, but they were doing so many other things and like just having a place to go to deliver something or to have other roles of walking people to rooms. There were all kinds of different roles in this system that people could play that I imagine offered a kind of like healing in those early hours and days. Yeah. I mean, the key leaders were the front desk person who was checking families in. That was an assistant superintendent. There were runners telling the therapist where to go and what rooms to be in because we didn't know where we were in the high school. So those runners were teachers. And then we had a school board member managing the donations and the food and the water. Myself, um, two of my employees at Simply B were scheduling um, on the second half of the leg we were there. Then we had in the room, we had a really lovely husband and wife who ran so many of the mini trainings and the whiteboard and everything. So we had kind of these key people that naturally got in a position. And once they were there, they kind of self-trained and built it. And so it was impossible to replace them. So we created also this little bit of a problem, which is none of us could go home because we didn't have the time or capacity to train somebody else. So what we did wasn't sustainable. And I think that is something that I go back to, which is what worked for you the first week isn't going to work for you in a year or in two months. So we have to always be adjusting our own plan, our own response, our own healing, our own grief. And I just feel such a parallel to 
the adaption that we took those seven days is a little reflective of the adaption of what it feels like to kind of come from a crisis and then improve and grow and change. And we kept the bar so low. Like we were allowed to fail. We were allowed to make mistakes. And then we would adjust. We didn't spend time judging and feeling guilty about things. We just kept moving forward and making sure that we were adapting as best as we could. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that takes me to thinking about, I was just reading last night, this new study that came out in an emergency medicine journal that was a team of emergency medicine docs went through you know X number of mass shootings over the last six, seven years and tracked not just the shooting injuries, but all injuries. And it turned, one of their findings was that 37% of the injuries in these mass shootings didn't involve bullet wounds. It was all of the other kinds of physical injuries that happen um, and is in a scene that becomes that chaotic and dangerous. And then also the emotional, the short and long-term acute stress responses and PTSD. And one of their takeaways was that we currently have zero tracking system. We don't track non- gun-based injuries that come from these. And so there's no database. We have no idea the scope of impact, financial, emotional, work-related impacts that linger. And um, I know that's something that you have an eye on. So can we talk a little bit about what needs to happen around emotions and psychology in the early hours and days to help people kind of mitigate or reduce the chances of the longer term impacts like what do what are the first hours and days of a critical after a critical incident what do people need in terms of psychological care yeah of course i think that we basically need to ensure that first and foremost that the person has a safe home to return to that they have food in the house they have resources they have connections to the community because If we have someone in our center and they come in and they've witnessed something, but then they're going home and it's an abusive environment, then there's there's not a lot of healing that can be done. So first and foremost, I think we need to really just understand, like, were you safe and well before this event? And if you weren't, we want to talk about that. If you were, then what we want to talk about is how are you going to have private internal experiences, whether they're flashbacks or memories, um, words and thoughts, and how are you going to take care of yourself? So the self-compassion, the connection to self-care to make sure that they are feeling like they deserve services and really just being gentle towards themselves because the guilt, I think, is so intense afterwards. And then on top of that, you know, connection and feeling a sense of safety in that room, we also want to move into the connection to referrals, the connection to moving outside of that center so that you have triaged the crisis, but then also you're allowing them to have a relationship that's more long-term and more effective. And so that rebuilding phase is important. Psychological first aid really talks a lot about that. You're not asking them about the event. You're not asking them to describe where they were or what they saw. We are not doing any of that. And you're not doing anything that you can't follow through on. We had 45 minutes with them. And so also not over-promise and under-deliver in those services as well. Mm-hmm. 
so if somebody doesn't have the opportunity, if somebody experiences um, a crisis like this in a community that is not set up to offer what Highland Park offered, I think there are still some takeaways in what you said, which in one of which is, right, knowing that you are going to need even more safety and comfort than you already need and deserve, at, you know, in the best of times. And I also hear you talking a lot about flexibility, that that when we've gone through something like this, we just have to, to the degree we can, be flexible with ourselves and, and reducing expectations, managing expectations of what's reasonable for us to expect of ourselves in those early days and weeks and being able to adapt, adapt expectations, adapt plans. I know that was one of the big things that came up in our family system. You know, we we are a family of four that has gone to the parade just about every single year. And this year I couldn't get couldn't get people moving early enough and we didn't go. You know, so our impacts were um certainly like vicarious impacts. We had so many friends and neighbors and people we love who were um quite close. And so we had all of all the kind of complicated things that came around that. But a lot of our family conversations were around what parts of our next few days and weeks continue and what parts of those plans do we abandon and revision in the wake of this. And I think that's something that's such an important message is that I think sometimes a trauma response is, we got to keep going. Of course, we got to go to work. Of course, we got to go make, you know, to these plans that we made. Of course, we have to. And for others, it's, I can't, I can't, I got to make my world really, really, really small for a while. So can you talk a little bit about that need to really just give ourselves some flexibility afterwards? Yeah. I like what you said, flexibility, permission, permission to be flexible as well. So that when you have a day and you look at it and you say, today, I need three things. And that's what my gut is telling me. I need to go for a walk. I need to go to bed early. I need to ask my boss if I can work in a private office and maybe have my door closed today. It's like, what do you need today? And then envisioning, what do I need over the weekend? And what do I need in a month when maybe there's an anniversary or there's something like, what do I, what do I need? And then making a loose plan and then changing that plan as it goes. Because I, went through a lot of the trauma and the emotions after everything. Um, I also went to D.C. and supported Uvalde families to tell their stories to senators about a week after what happened. And so, you know, it was sort of like this cliff that I kind of like I went over and then all of a sudden it was a free fall and I didn't know what was going to catch me. So every day I just said, okay, I need a walk. I need to um, work from home. And it was very healing. And I think I started to do a really nice job of the flexibility and making sure that it didn't have to be set in stone. And that requires permission, flexibility, and also a commitment to yourself, like that you do want to take care of yourself, that you are valuable and important and worth the self-care and the breaks, and that you don't have to just work and grind because that's the uh, avoidance in us to avoid all of the pain and stick to normal but that always comes out sideways in relationships and sleep and health. So I don't think it's worth it to do that. Oh, and that there's an element there of like trusting ourselves that our bodies actually will move towards what we need when we 
give space for that. One of the big things that happened in our family is that our daughter, we made just a difficult decision to have our daughter not go on this incredible leadership opportunity that she, we had been planning for for a long time. And it was, it was a complicated family decision. And in her not going, you know, the next day she had her two best friends over. They tucked in her bed with a stack of paper and a box of markers. These are, you know, adolescent girls and they just colored for hours and hours. It was like, oh shit, this is what they need. They know exactly what they need, you know? And it was, it was like, thank goodness that we were able to just I don't know, liberate her from that, from the expectation of how the summer should have gone. And that then it's like, it's like the healing just filled in super organically. This is what's needed. A cozy bed, a stack of markers, a couple of girlfriends, some music in the background. That's what's needed. Okay. All right. I get it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I was the year before I, um, lost my dad one year the week of 4th of July. So it'll be two years coming up really soon. And I was in a grief process before Highland Park. And that process trained me and taught me how to go through more trauma. The loss of my dad was traumatic and unexpected. So I was kind of like, oh, I've been here. I've done this before. And I know what to do. And so that looks like changing my day, changing my life, changing my schedule, and cluing people into that and doing it in a very respectful, kind way. So my work schedule changed. My work commitments changed. My relationship with my husband changed um, with my family, too, because I don't uh, necessarily you know, travel and do the things that I used to do. I'm a little more cautious. So I, I think you know, as you're talking about your daughter needing to be in bed with a coloring book, it's like there are definitely things in our lives that are there and there's an urge or there's a whisper and then you don't do it because it feels soft or lazy or silly or out of touch. And, you know, it's like, it's enough. Like that whisper is enough for you to go color in bed for two hours and door dash coffee and a bagel. Like <laughs> those things. Right. Yeah. Right. You can do those things. Yeah. I hear that, you know, yeah, that for you, sadly, Right. In the wake of losing your dad, it was like you had gone through this training program of like, okay, this is what it looks like. And then you were able to tap into that. Yeah. I'm thinking about my own. Yeah. I mean, I think there are plenty of reasons why that, that pivot, that adaptation, that release is hard for me. I think that, you know, my, my family dynamics as I was growing up was sort of like, you just keep going. Doesn't matter if things are hard and scary, you just keep going. And so I, I think my default would have been like, of course you go on the leadership trip because you just keep going. And it was like, one of those mothering parenting moments where I really had to slow down, tend to my, you know, inner me that has historically coped by just continuing to go and then really center what she was feeling, what she was communicating. Be like, okay, I get it. This is you actually, she gets to do it differently than perhaps I would have in her spot. And in giving her the ability to do it differently, I heal that part of me that never did or never would have. And yeah. Yeah. I was raised the same exact way, the same exact way. I do uh, relate to that. Your default would be, you just keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, and I did. I, I was going to say, you did you know. because you did the center <laughs> and then you went to DC and you did. So you did. You right. just kept going. Yeah. Yeah. I kept going. I signed. So we had a office and it was five offices in one suite. And in Highland Park, I signed a 9,000 square foot lease. 
and faxed it over when I was in Highland Park. So I was building a business and doing that. And I continued to build the business and it's, you know, growing to this day rapidly. So, you know, I I say all of this about self-care and about inner trust and listening to your body and also being very successful and moving very fast at the same time. So you don't have to check out to do self-care at all. Um, and so, you know, I don't want anyone to say, well, right, I don't have the bandwidth for that because I have to work. Of course, I have to work too. So just find find those little crevices and nuggets in your day and take an opportunity to, to you know, leverage that. Um, and for me, it's like, no, you know, no TV, no social media, no phone. Um, and that three hours a day I get back. So there's ways. I think we just don't always necessarily take the time to think about it that way. Right. That's great. It's not all or nothing. It's not, I am centered around self-care or I'm centered around drive. Right. Um, okay. So what, let's talk about what happens, let's say within a couple when in the, you know, in the wake, I, I had this you know, quite a bit with my own just friends and clients in the wake of this, when when the couple, when two partners respond really different to the same trauma, you know, how, and I think oftentimes, as is always, it's very easy in a couple system to get split. You know, one holds the horror and one holds the, thank God, you know, it, it could have been worse or it could have been us or it could have been, you know, and couples I think can get split around that. And when that happens, opportunities for empathy and compassion and caretaking can really break down. So tell me, did you see that, experience it? What are your thoughts about how two people who care about each other, you know, can kind of reach across those divides in their experience? Yeah, of course. You know, I think about personally, the relationship that I had with my husband changed when my dad passed and then after Highland Park. So for two years, he really had to kind of be a little bit of that like soft landing for me. And so fortunately, the year of grief and moving into that, we were kind of settled. But what I noticed is that I was always aware of the significance of what was happening in that Highland Park response. And he was not aware of what was happening um, or nor could he because he couldn't be in the building and see the magnitude of what we were doing. And so a little bit of what happened for us was I was trying to explain to him what was happening and convince him how big and overwhelming it was. And then he not purposely minimized it, but you know couldn't quite grasp it. So the more he kind of minimized it, the more I harped on it and spent more time on it to pull him over to my side. So I noticed that we kind of polarized each other and I invited him in on the last day because I thought, you know, this changed me to the core. I want him to be here and see it so that when I talk about it and when I come home from this, he's going to have a context for it. So he came on Saturday and he did see it. And we got to go into the FBI briefing room and talk to the family recovery agents and stuff. So I just noticed us polarizing and I think he wanted it to be smaller and I wanted the validation that it was big and life-changing. So we went through that. And I think that it's probably pretty common for couples who are in the trenches. I imagine, well, I would love to hear from you, when I imagine what for him was that desire to make it smaller, I imagine was a sense of feeling protective of you and some fear about what if, like where, what happens to Audrey if this really, she's saying it's changing her to the core, but I like her core. 
I like who she is. What is this? So some fear, some, yeah. What's your understanding of what was, what was behind his struggle to, to really let it be as big as it was? I mean, he loves to fix things. And I'm just imagining that there is nothing to change or fix. And so if it was small, maybe that call to action for him to fix it would be smaller. And if it was as big as it was, I think he would be like, well, how am I going to fix this huge thing? And so it probably was just this desire to kind of fix it and make it better. And that without being able to fix it, he has to sit and watch and support. And that's hard to sit and watch and support. Um, and I don't necessarily do a great job of bringing him along to the on the side. You know, it, it feels, I feel very busy. I feel very rushed. I felt very overwhelmed. Um, I was very plugged into my phone, probably, you know, sleeping four hours a night. So I didn't make it any easier <laughs> for him to have a sense of what was happening. <laughs> I didn't let him in very much. Um, but when I did let him in, it was kind of like a whole emotional explosion. So the poor guy is probably just, you know, not having any, not knowing where to go with me those days. For sure. For sure. Yeah. That is, I mean, it's a sweeping gender, you know, stereotype, but one that John, Dr. John Gray made a gazillion dollars from when he wrote, Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus, which was the whole premise was, right, we train and teach boys and men to solve problems. And that oftentimes, right, when a man is partnered with a woman, that looks like if she's hurting, if she's upset, if she's overwhelmed, it's mine to fix. And there's no freaking way he can fix what happened in Highland Park. He could not fix that for you. He could not make it any different for you or for anybody else whose lives were touched in that way. Yeah. And so that helplessness. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, you know, you're saying this and I'm thinking, you know, how did it end and how did we kind of resolve? And what's interesting is that when he came on Saturday, I left my car at the school and he drove us home and I called him to come drive me home because leaving was very hard um, emotionally and mentally. If you saw me on Saturday, I always apologize because I was just a shell of a person on Saturday. Um, I had friends like walking in the hallways with me because I just, I thought I was going to come on loose a little bit. And so he almost did kind of fix it. It's so interesting you say that because I'm like, maybe, maybe we somehow like found a way for him to come and fix it. Like there was a little bit of like a rescue at the end. Um, and I don't let people rescue me very often. So I think <laughs> it was, it was really meaningful to have him come and do that because, um, I hit a point where I was needing a lot of people to kind of get me through that last day. And he was like the final one who came and got me. And that was really sweet. Okay. So one of these, one of the takeaways here, especially for, you know, I think about there, there are a lot of women like you, like us who, right, can do, you, you can do, you, you built an entire center that served an entire community in the aftermath of the worst thing that our community has ever gone through. Like you can get shit done. And so there's a way in which when there is something for him to do, when you make that available, when you soften into it, that's really essential. Just because you can do it all doesn't mean you have to in those spaces where you can let him, allow him to, yeah, escort you out of the building and get you safely home, that you were able to make space for that and that he was able to step into that. It's really beautiful and really essential, I imagine, for both of you. Yeah. The the year before that, there was just a handful of times where there's those events where you just really need someone to take care of you. And so 
we've been married for 11 years now. And I just imagine that a lot of that is, you know, learning to trust him and go there. And also, if I have that breakdown once, I don't want him treating me fragile for the next five days. Um, and he doesn't. And so I appreciate that because <laughs> sometimes I don't like to be That's vulnerable because then I think people handle me with gloves because it's a little, I think, jarring to see like a strong woman break down and then you think they're fragile for five days. So he he leaves me be um, on the days after and I really appreciate that space he gives me after. You know, this is, I, I'm thinking about moms demand action. There's a way in which there's so many women who are stepping into leadership roles, activism, especially around the gun violence issue. And I sometimes think, okay, men, like, where are you? You know, and I know there are men obviously, obviously involved in this fight, but I'm, I'm thinking about, I have a very strong memory after the Parkland shooting of a mom and dad who had lost their daughter, their child, and the mom was being interviewed and she was raging. She was raging and crying, you know, and he just had a hand on her back and he stayed quiet and he was just right there with her, not changing it and her, you know, and I just thought like it was such a powerful model, you know, of him being present there with her because that is so, and I think that's happening in homes across the country as as women and mothers are enraged at what this country is allowing to happen, right? And I know that fathers are as well, but there's something about who can stay near, who, you know, can you stay near a woman's rage that shows that she's awake and paying attention and this is not effing okay. You know, I think there's a really important space for not trying to shrink or contain or make that nice because nothing that's happening right now in this country around gun policy is nice. Nothing about this is reasonable. And so rage is a really appropriate response. Yeah, because it's not our jobs. We should not be doing this. And so for the rage to come out, it's like, of course, that's the exact emotion that should be happening because this is not our jobs to be doing the federal activism and the banning and the policies. Like Our jobs are what we went to school for, what we signed up to be as a mother. And so, you know, it is outrageous that this is like what's landed in women's laps. And it's very resentful. And we put that rage into a good place and we find purpose and passion, then it's healing. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that we do that might not be healing. It might be re-traumatizing. So I always just kind of think about, you know, is my activism, is my effort serving me? Is it making meaning? Is it sustainable? That's what I always ask. Is this sustainable? Because if not, then we should not harm ourselves because we are so enraged that we are activists, that then we are martyrs and harming. And so I think that I always, I always look at this like, am I, am I harming myself for the greater good or am I doing just enough that it's a win for me and it's a win for other people? And having that balance, because I think moms can be so selfless and then it kind of starts to wear away at their well-being. And I imagine can become misguided. I'm thinking about racial dynamics in this struggle and like how do it, this, this happened, you know, Highland Park is an incredibly privileged community. And so I know one of those intersections there of rage and whiteness perhaps could be, right, I'm going to go full board in and I'm going to not listen and look around and see who else is building what that I can tuck into, you know, um, and that sometimes, especially for white women, activism can, can, right, needs to just be 
needs to be tempered with respect for how do you use privilege in really responsible ways? How do you look around at who's already built what? How do you tuck into something for to be respectful, but also, as you're saying, to be sustainable as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big question I get is, you know, why isn't the South Side of Chicago getting this or why isn't the Northern Chicago side getting this? And, you know, my only thing I can control, the only thing I can do is say, call me, email me, I'll talk to you. I'll tell you what we did. I'll tell you how we did it. I'll give you everything I have and I can control that, but I can't control the social climate and structure to the point where I can explain why this is happening or it's, it is wrong. Um, so all I can do, you know, is to respond by saying, call me, I'm here. I'll answer your questions. I'll give you everything I have. And I take, um, the ownership and the acknowledgement that there is that the racial social class divide. Um, and I hate that. So call me and I'll give you everything I have. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. As we move towards wrapping up, anything else you would whisper in the ear of a listener who is trying to figure out maybe where their place might be around activism, speaking up, trying to do something kind of outside of their own home? Like what guidance do you have or thoughts do you have about how to, from whatever place, like not just a therapist who wants to perhaps, but any, you know, from whatever place or vocation, um, somebody might want to start to use their pain for purpose. Any other thoughts you have? Yeah. I think about, you know, what I did after Uvalde and I became a recess monitor on Mondays for 45 minutes. So for me, I thought, well, if I can be involved in the school, make students feel seen, heard, loved, I have an eye on the kids, I have an eye on my kids, then I felt like maybe I would prevent a bully to turn into a shooter. You know, maybe I would catch something at the recess that I could bring to the principal's attention so that it doesn't turn into violence. So I think, you know, when you think about contributing to the world in terms of gun violence, it does not have to have anything to do with guns. It can have the recess monitor. It could be the lunchroom supervisor. You can join the PTA and raise money for social emotional learning curriculum. Like you can do so many things to prevent the shooter. Um, So just think outside the box and feel good about what you're contributing to, but don't narrow in on guns because that can be very triggering for people in the one-year anniversary. So think outside the box um, and think about how you contribute to the community in vastly different ways in volunteer opportunities because the best way to prevent gun violence is to prevent shooters. And shooters are coming from social isolation and coming from violent backgrounds. So I think... If anything, maybe that'll inspire someone to open up their possibilities. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. There are lots. This is a multi-systemic, multi-dimensional problem, which means that we can have a variety of access points in how we participate in moving towards something safer. Yeah. Audrey, how can people stay connected to you and the work that you're doing? Please say more about where, how people can find you and, and stay near you. Yeah, social media is definitely where we are. So simply be counseling on Instagram, Audrey Grunst, LCSW on Instagram, and then Facebook, simply be counseling. You'll see me in the um, background of that. And then if you just want to know me a little more personally, <laughs> Audrey Grunst, LCSW, you'll see my dogs, my kids, my puppies, my frogs, my lizards, my guinea pigs. <laughs> you can see me there. And you have a book on on Amazon. 
I have a book. You're right. Yeah. So five ways to grow a resilient mind on Amazon. And it focuses on a roadmap to self-development or even for therapists to work with clients. And it's a very practical, tangible book called Five Ways to Grow a Resilient Mind based on the copyright model that we built out called a Growing a Resilient Mind model. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks. Thank you so much, Audrey, for your work in this field and for the ways you've shown up for our community and inspired so many to take action, even when feelings of deep fear and powerlessness are inescapable. We've linked many resources in the show notes that can point you toward actions that you can take and ways to learn more about some of the frameworks Audrey mentioned for the response of mental health professionals in the wake of a major crisis. Thank you for sticking with me through this difficult and important conversation. I appreciate you and I hope that you take care. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.